Namaste. Welcome to Infinity Foundation's Kurukshetra podcast. I am your host Divya Nagraj. In this podcast, you will hear Shri Rajiv Malhotra talk about his book Being Different at an event held in Balaji Temple, Chicago in the year 2012. Let's listen in. Delighted to be back. Uh, today I'll talk about the new book i have which is called being different everybody prefers being same lot of publishers said rajiv write a book being same rather than being different and it will sell better lot of people who reviewed the book and lot of people you know would like my kids in college when their friends come they say what are you write working on as i'm saying or writing on being different you all become okay 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 so they 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 aren't we all the same why are we going to be different isn't it going to create tension shouldn't we all be one this kind of a thing <clears throat> so the original work i did got directly into how we are different as dharmic civilization while there's a lot of diversity within the dharma is many schools of hinduism vedanta also has many schools and dharma also includes buddhism jainism sikhism there's a there are certain family family commonalities like members of a family are different but there's a family resemblance similarly the abrahamic religions and western thought have lot of diversity internally lot of different schools but there's a certain common ground certain common assumptions which that civilization has made so the the purpose is not to essentialize that all dharma is sort of one idea or or all western thought is one idea there are clearly many differences you know you could say there are a lot of differences between dogs there are many internally many differences between dogs and cats but still there is a dog difference from cat overall you know or many kinds of roses and many kinds of lilies but a rose and a lily can be differentiated even though they are they have internal diversity so i wanted to identify how dharmic civilization is different from western universalism what i call western universalism and i'll describe in a moment what these are why they are important what the implications are then about a couple years before the book was to be coming out i start i you know every every iteration of this book i would send it to at least 10 critics of various traditions both dharmic traditions western traditions for critical feedback and then i would rewrite it then send it back for to another 10 people like that i kept doing for 15 20 years two years before the book came out i started realizing that a large part of the discomfort people have is not about the specific differences i'm talking about because those have resolved so i realized that uh, even though i had uh, successfully reconciled resolved all sorts of issues people raised about the nature of the west and the nature of dharma and what is different and all that there was an underlying uneasiness about the topic of difference itself so i spent uh, i may i added chapter 1 called uh, why difference is important the audacity of difference the importance of difference in which i wanted to r- justify the project before starting the book 
justify the, re, the, the purpose of explaining difference, why it's important. Now, I found that uh, people, by and large, suffer from something I have coined the term difference anxiety. Difference anxiety is like, I'm anxious, I'm different from you. Could be gender is different, religious difference, uh, ethnic difference, racial difference, difference of whatever kind. If we are, if I feel that we are different, then I feel a little anxious, I feel a little uncomfortable. This is I call difference anxiety. So I started studying where this difference anxiety comes from and I found that it can either be from superiority or inferiority. So in history, those who felt they are superior to others, to resolve their difference anxiety, they would either genocide them, get rid of them, because if you genocide people, there are no different people left, or turn them to slaves to marginalize them, or colonize them and say, we're going to civilize you and make you like us, or we'll convert you. Those are examples of difference anxiety from superiority complex, and they have led to a lot of problems. Then there are difference anxieties also from inferiority complex. Somebody feels that, you know, I have to be like them, rather, you know, I, I'm inferior, I have to be like them. Good example is when I go to Delhi, the servant in my mother's house, I go to their kids and I say, Namaste. And the servant says, Sabko, good morning, bolo. So he's got this difference anxiety from inferiority complex. And he tells my mother, most important benefit he wants is that his daughters should go to a school where they'll wear a western dress and the son should go to school where they're a tie. These are the complexes because there's a certain standard of legitimacy, what it takes to be progressive, what it takes to be, you know, upper class. Language is a part of it, dress, aesthetics, all these creams to become white in India are very popular. This sort of is all part of difference anxiety from inferiority complex. So, chapter one talks about this issue. Because unless I can convince the reader that it is worth talking about difference, do not suffer from difference anxiety. Unless I can convince the reader, he won't even get into the main book. He'll be so scared of the differences. And this is why a lot of gurus are talking about we're all the same, and I'm explaining one by one why they are really wrong, because that is not how our tradition is talking about. And it's more uh, popular cop-out if somebody asks you what is dis distinct about your tradition's position, if you don't know the answer, it's easy to, easier to say, well, there's no difference, we're all one, everything is the same. It's a kind of a, rather than saying, okay, I'll study, I'll get back to you with an answer, the easy way out is to say, I'm, we're all the same, therefore, you don't have to study. Yeah? Now, the opposite of difference anxiety is difference with mutual respect. I respect you for being different and I want you to respect me for being the who I am. I don't think there's anything wrong with being different. You're fine like you are. You're a creature of how your circumstance, you are created a certain way. And I'm the way I am also. So we are both different, but we can celebrate the difference. You can actually celebrate difference and I'm going to explain what is different between the two civilizations in a way that makes neither one feel superior or inferior. But the difference is there. The difference is definitely there. Okay. Now, from a dharmic point of view, the way to explain to our people is that difference is built into the cosmos. 
you know, you know, no two days are identical. No two human beings have the same prakriti in 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 uh, Ayurveda. No two have the same fingerprint DNA in modern science. No two plants are the same. No two dogs are the same, even though they're dogs, but they have different varieties. No two flowers are the same. Geography differs from one location to another, different climates. And human beings are the product of different geographical conditions. So some are dark, some are light, some are eating fish and some are eating rice and some are eating vegetables or whatever. Different. We have we are, we've evolved because of that difference. All that is, if you believe in a God who created the world, then that's the world has been created and we are product of that. You can't argue about difference being a problem because then you are arguing that there is something wrong in the creation because that is the way the creation is. Yeah. If you don't believe there's creation, but there is a manifestation, manifestation, different idea than creation, manifestation, Brahm manifests as the Nama Roop of everything, from the little insect to the elephant, from the human being to anybody, Brahm manifests as everything. And therefore, the, the Brahm manifesting in each individuality, each particular entity, is the Leela of Brahm. That is the Leela. So to say there is something wrong with it is to say that this Leela is a bad design. The choreographer, the grand uh, product, product producer of the show uh, didn't do the right thing. He should have made everybody the same only. But then there would be no purpose. There would be no, no purpose to the Leela if every, there were no differences. So you can philosophy, philosophically explain to people who are well informed that you cannot get out of difference. You might as well accept it, learn to appreciate it and enjoy it and see it as the plan, the grand scheme of things. If you, are a, if you are into physics, you have to understand that everything has got its own differences. If you are into biology, you can understand it like that. If you are into aesthetics, there are different aesthetics. The whole idea of dance and, and art is all about difference. If you are a spiritual person, you can understand it from the spiritual point of view. So difference is something you, that you must deal with, which means you have to get out of the difference anxiety. So the first chapter gives you this long discussion on how to overcome your difference anxiety, which means I prepare the reader to go on to the next part of the book where I'm going to explain what the differences are. So this, this uh, business of difference uh, is explained in this manner uh, to, so that people take seriously the idea uh, of being different. Now, the next uh, major concept I'm going to introduce from the book is the concept of Western universalism. Western universalism. Western universalism means the West's history, which is different from other people, Chinese history or Arab history or Indian history, the West's history, which resulted in Western thought, Western religious ideas, Western values, Western aesthetics, yeah? Western ideas of right and wrong, Western you know, ways, uh, that became the universal standard for everybody because of West power, because of colonial power, because West expanded, language expanded from the West, uh, Western institutions expanded, job opportunities, media, all of that, means that the Western thought and Western point of view got installed and downloaded and in, into the minds of people everywhere. So the West's idea, ideas became universal. As opposed to say China, if China had taken over the world, then Chinese universalism would have become the universalism. Or let's say uh, Islam were taking over the whole world, everybody becomes Muslim, then there would be an Islamic universalism. Everybody would be studying 
you know we would not have any other point of view this would be all we know if hitler had won the war then there would be a certain you know german supremacy kind of universalism so one universalism predominates not based on superiority but based on power this is something important to understand it's based on power not superiority and uh, this idea of uh, competing universalisms crystallized when you know 10 years ago i was invited to a give a talk at the indian institute of sciences in bangalore and the talk was where is india in the clash of civilizations so now the famous clash of civilizations that uh, was the phrase was coined in the 90s uh, is about west versus islam versus china they each are claiming world you know dominance they want to create world dominance each claims a universalism there is obviously a western universalism there is also an islamic universalism they believe they have an answer to every every situation not only religion your relationship with god but family life how it should be society how it should be money finance business uh, all the politics everything is defined in a certain code and the chinese are uh, projecting an idea called confucian universalism confucian universalism and um, when i was explaining confucian universalism one smart alec indian make a joke out of it said yeah but we have confusion in universalism meaning we are confused people but that's just a joke um confucian universalism is uh, being now discussed as a chinese uh, alternative to western universalism they have confucian human rights confucian idea of science and technology confucian thought and they are saying when we develop science technology modernity we are not westernizing because we are doing it according in accordance with the chinese uh, ways yeah and japan became very technologically sophisticated but did not uh, become westernized in its culture it did not lose that they remain japanese but very technologically sophisticated indians are very confused about this indians say am i the choice is do i remain indian civilized according to indian civilization or do i get modern as if there is no indian way of being modern you follow so always often they ask you are you dharmic or are you modern to them the way you can advance into modernity is only through westernization so they have given the west the universal claim of modernity as if there is no other approach to modernity chinese i give them credit have said there is also a chinese alternative way of modernity so just just so western modernity is one kind chinese modernity is another kind so the question i have to answer in this talk 10 years ago was is there an indian approach to modernity also which is very deeply indian according to dharma principles but we believe according to that we would have science we would have technology we would have medicine we would have human rights we would have social political progress we would have all these things that modernity has without giving up dharma in fact based on dharma itself and because in the dharma we have separated shruti and smriti so we can advance more so than the biblical religions and the abrahamic religions because they don't have separation of shruti and smriti they've collapsed them into one book so one book if you one book contains your shruti smriti and itihas puranas everything combined as one book and that book is final and frozen can't be changed you have a very hard time advancing this is why in the west you need reformation you need wars you need a huge calamity to get out of that box whereas in our case shruti is eternal but smriti keeps changing 
Smritis, historical, what changes with the time and place. So we can have an American Hindu Smriti on, you know, adapting dharma for American life. We can have a Smriti for time and place. In fact, Manu Smriti says that this Smriti has to be rewritten for every time and place. It is not a one permanent book. You don't memorize it and turn it into fixed canon or dogma. I explain that in a lot of detail. So, because we kept Shruti and Smriti separate, uh, it is therefore for us very easy and even necessary and required of us to keep evolving and adapting with the times. So having dharma modernity is not a very uh, wrong idea at all. It is a very natural idea for us. And we should be investing in uh, this kind of investigative work to create dharma modernity paradigm. And see what the youth needs, what society needs today, what are the issues facing today and come up with what is the dharma, what would the dharmic acharyas and rishis do about this circumstance rather than parroting what was done by them in the past. We have to apply those methodologies of thinking and reasoning for today's circumstance. So this business of where is India in the clash of civilizations means we acknowledge that there are three major universalisms that are each comp competing for world dominance. India will either have to claim a, its own alternative uh, dharmic you know, view that requires to be appreciated and respected or India will be digested, broken up into some part will become Islamized and become part of you know, Sufism and Islam. Some will become uh, Christianized and Westernized, secularized and so on. And my previous book, uh, the one before this called Breaking India, talks about that scenario as a possible scenario of India being gobbled up by different foreign nexuses. But in this book I want to understand, I want to explain what would, what would an Indian response to Western universalism consist of? Because people say, well, okay, you're, protect, you're defending the dharmic civilization, but what is distinct about it? Unless you can define what is distinct about it, you have not figured out why you want to protect it. If a kid asks you, why you want to protect this culture, but if everything is same, what's the problem? In fact, I was at a conference by a very prominent global guru of ours, very famous name, and he was talking about how, how everything is same, all religions same, everything you can do is same, which is not true. I can get into details if somebody asks. It's certainly not true, because that way even Ravan's dharma would be same, and Kaurav and Pandav dharma would be the same. They, they are all claiming to know the truth and there would be no need for a Mahabharata and Hitler's dharma would be the same and Bin Laden's dharma would be the same. Then this would be a joke. The whole thing would be a joke. You could get away with anything. But anyway, he was, he was sort of acquiescing and falling prey to this fashionable trend to say everything is the same. And then after a break to a different audience, he was very critical of you know, evangelists converting and this and that and why we should fight it. So I said, isn't there a contradiction? If everything is same, what's wrong with conversion? If everything is same, you should, you should actually tell your people to go become Christians because everything is same. It will solve the problem. And he got very suddenly, you know, shaken up. So I said, but it is true. Your position that everything is same contradicts your position that you are against all this evangelism converting. You should say one or the other. But you are contradicting yourself. If you don't want evangelists to take over and convert your identity, then there must be something different about it. There must be something distinct which is worth protecting. 
then you better explain what is that distinctiveness and if the, once you've understood what is that distinctiveness then you can't go around saying everything is the same so he didn't know the answer but he understood the problem that I'm describing and I've come across this so many times that I figured I ought to write a book on being different that if to explain that from that point of view now once people understand and appreciate that we must have a very clear idea of our distinctiveness then the question comes please explain what exactly is that distinctiveness yeah, that's what the question comes that's what 80% of this book is about chapter 2 3 4 and 5 each of those four chapters focuses on one major kind of difference and goes into a lot of details on that particular kind of difference so that by the time you've read the, uh, these, uh, this book you will have a, my very clear dis description and argument on what are different things what, what is unique and distinct about philosophically, metaphysically about our faith and many of the common, commonly heard views I reject you know like we are mystical and West is materialistic that's not true we are also materialistic, we build Harappa, we, we have medicine, we have metallurgy, we have textiles, we have Vashyas, we have different Purusharthas, we are, we are allowed to be in, in enjoying Grihasthals, you know, so it's not like we, everybody is mystical. And the West is not only materialistic, they've also had mystics. So these kind of very simple answers don't work. You have to go very deep into to find out the answers, which is what I'm doing in this book. Now the methodology I used is I'm, I'm not I'm doing two manthans. Manthan is, you know, a tension between opposing forces. So the cover of this book is a Samudra Manthan. So I took that picture from the Thailand International Airport. They have the Devas and the Asuras, human life-size statues. And it's about 150, 200 feet long, car, you know, this display in the Thailand International Airport. Huge display. Those of you who've been there can't miss it. And the devas on one side, asuras on the other side, the deity with the, in the spindle, with the snake being pulled back and forth, you know, churning the ocean. And this is the uh, metaphor of oppo opposing sides, tension, mutual tension, and as a result of that, new regional things come out. So, one manthan was between me and Western thinkers, arguing with different kinds of Western thinkers. From those who are orthodox Christians to those who are into the Christianity same as everything and we also have yoga, we have meditation, we are into Christ consciousness, whatever you have you absorbed it also we are same so I have to argue with them to show that they are playing this game and they can go up to a point but there's a boundary they don't want to cross because then their exclusivity is gone they have to stick to that idea of exclusivity so that is one manthan and then westerners who are not religious but uh, into enlightenment, secularism, material science I have to discuss with them also. So one manthan has been for the last many years more than a decade with westerners. But in parallel I've had a manthan ongoing with dharmic people. You know people who are uh, Vaishnavites in uh, Vrindavan and Sri Aurobindo people in Pondicherry and uh, you know, Kashmir Shaivites and people in Tantra and people in uh, Chinmay Mission and uh, Vedanta, you know, uh, Advait Vedanta and uh, uh, Ramakrishna Mission people and people into Vishishta Vedanta and also Buddhists and also Jains. So, 
my manthan with the dharmic people was to understand what is common without collapsing everything into one it's like what is common among all the roses without saying there's only one kind of rose but what is common among the roses can be answered by saying in what way are all these 50 different kind of roses different from the lilies once you understand how all these roses even though they are very different from each other but how are they all sharing a common difference from lilies common difference from something else yeah how are all the breeds of dogs different from the cats different from the horses different from the elephants that is something you share all of us in a family are unique and different from each other but what is it that we share from other families Dif- different difference with other families so this is my methodology now if i answer this question of the manthan with the other dharmas how they relate to each other if i am too precise too refined too fine then they all disagree with each other and the argument starts the arya samaj guy says i got nothing to do with vedanta vedanta says i got nothing to do with this one this one says i got nothing ramakrishna mission i can't even be in the same podium as is con you know like that very common all of you know so going into too much nitpicking does not serve my project because if there is so much fragmentation and divisiveness within the dharma then when i argue with the west they'll say well which dharma are you talking about are you talking about dharma number 1 or dharma number 2 or dharma number 5 of course they know how to say that they know how to divide us up and then i have no answer i can't even stand on a foundation unless i have a common foundation so in this manthan with other dharmas i have to create something which is not so detailed and so refined and so sharp that it divides them up but something which is common and leave it there not go further than that if it is too broad if my characterization of dharma is too generic too flexible like we are all one we all love each other we believe in peace then you know even the western religion will say ah of course we believe in peace we are all one we are brothers like that so if you are too broad there is no difference left with abrahamic religions yeah it's like if you define very very broadly roses all the roses have good smell and they have nice colorful things but then they are the same as all the other flowers you cannot be too broad or you cannot be too narrow if you are too broad there is no difference between dharma and abrahamic traditions if you are too narrow then the differences between arya samaj and vedanta and uh, you know vrindavan uh, uh, the uh, vaishnavas and what not all of those are differences become so sharp that you don't have a dharma civilization so the reason it took me so long is i had to keep experimenting until i discovered the right balance which i believe i did and that's when i wrote this book that's when i wrote this book so this book will give you what is different between dharma and other faiths such that this difference will be respected by every one of the dharma traditions major ones this is very interesting very interesting without trampling on their toes and making them same with each other without resolving their internal conflicts i found out what is common with the outsider it's like 
an outside invader is going to come and turn all the Indians into slaves, then the common enemy is a reason to unite, even though you got internal problems. Even though you got internal problems. You're in a family, and you're all having squabbles about little, little things with each other. But there is a neighboring guy who wants to take over your house and kick you all out. You got a common problem. So one way to find commonality is by understanding how we're different from others. Now, actually, I got this idea from Hegel, who's uh, considered one of the founding fathers of the Western identity and Western thought and history, you know, in the late 1700s and early 1800s. He did something similar for the West. There was no such thing as a big Western idea or European idea. There was German thought and British thought and French thought and, you know, Italian thought and, uh, you know, there were so many different Spanish thought. There were all these different, different uh, think thoughts in their own language and they were competing empires and wars with each other. And he's the one who started saying how we the Europeans are different from the Africans, how we the Europeans are different from the Native Americans, how we the Europeans are different from the Chinese, how we are different from the Indians. By focusing on how we are different from all those other guys, he started creating what is common among the Europeans. And this created a sense of the West as an idea. This is how it started. So I am actually doing something of that kind for India, for Indian, for Dharma civilization, by contrast with Western civilization. Now, one of the main differences I found is that all the dharmas, they can keep arguing different, uh, nitpicking on details, but they all will agree in the idea of karma and reincarnation. It's very interesting. Buddhists also, Jain also. You could be Arya Samaji, you could be uh, Ramakrishna Mission, Chinmaya Mission, Sri Aurobindo follower, you could be Shaivite, you could be Tantra, Goddess, you could be whatever, doesn't matter. You believe in this. And I've, it also that it met one test. Test number one is that they all agree with that principle. Test number two is Judaic Christianity and Islam absolutely cannot accept it. And I've shown in this book why. I've shown in this book why. It's because the main problem to be solved through religion in Christianity is that Adam and Eve commit original sin in Eden, Garden of Eden. They do something which is disobedience and God gives a curse. And the curse is that all your future progeny, means all the children born forever and ever, your children, their children, their children, their children, all humanity coming out of Adam and Eve, they will all be condemned. This is the curse of damnation. They'll be condemned to go to hell. Yeah, This is the problem. Now, then, the, it's very clear in Christian doctrine that human beings do not have the potential to overcome this sin in which they are born. They are born sinners. They can't overcome it on their own. We will argue that, look, I may have done a lot of karma, but I can do the phalla and do the various things and cure myself. I am Satchitananda, I have the potential in me to overcome everything that I may have done. But in Christianity they'll say that human beings do not have the potential without intervention, external intervention. You are not able to cure this on your own. Because this was such a huge sin, original sin, 
that the damnation is so permanent that it is part of human DNA, you can't solve it. So to solve it, God has to be born as a son. Only God can do the suffering. God has suffered for you on the cross. God has to be born and God has to do the palla so that it's, it, you, it saves you from doing the palla. This is called substitutional atonement, which means somebody has substituted to pay for your karma. You have a million dollar debt, you can't pay, so nice guy comes and write a check and say, okay, I substitute for you, pay it. So this is what God has done. This is very important to understand. We must do this purva paksha, which means studying of the other, to understand what the difference is and why karma won't work. I'm coming to that. So first there is original sin, which leads to all humanity being eternally damned. And then God's son is born and he has to be sacrificed, willingly suffer on behalf of all humanity so that they can believe in him and get out of this sin. Yeah, this is the scheme. This is the scheme. And if he is born as normal human beings are born through father, mother, sex, giving birth to a child, he will be the progeny of Adam and Eve and he will also be born sinner. Correct? So if Jesus himself were born sinner, how can he save other people? He will have the same limits. He can't solve the problem for himself even. So Jesus has to have virgin birth. Few, few Hindus even understand why virgin birth is such a big deal. The thing is, oh, it's a metaphorical. No. Virgin birth means he is not progeny of Adam and Eve. He's God's father is God, not a human being. And therefore he is not progeny of Adam and Eve. Do you understand the, different, the importance of virgin birth? You should be able to explain this. So Christians will be very impressed that, wow, this Hindu knows, you know. We can't make a fool out of him. You say virgin birth is necessary so that Jesus is not a born sinner because all progeny of Adam and Eve are cursed to be born sinners. And if he is not a progeny of Adam and Eve, then he is exempt from original sin. And for that, he has to have God as the father, no human father. Therefore, he has virgin birth. This is a very big deal. Now, therefore, this is the only man, only human being in Christianity's history, according to their history, only human being ever who is not born sinner is Jesus. It's a very big deal. So we can't say Jesus is just another Rishi, just another Yogi. No. Then the scheme will fall apart. He's the only one. Before him they were all born sinners because they had human God never impregnated and had a son ever before and never since after. Only person. No no one before, no one after, no one during his life other than himself was virgin birth and not a born sinner. So this is very important. Step one, there is Adam and Eve doing original sin. Step two, God gives this curse of original damnation. Step three, God gets virgin birth and therefore there is one human being in the history of mankind who is not born sinner. Next step, he is sacrificed and he says, anybody who believes in me, I, my sacrifice will work for him. Yeah? It's like bailout. Government does a bailout saying, okay, you, are, you, you got all the banks are in defaulting, so we will bail you out. We will deposit trillion dollars and bank can come and draw against the trillion dollars. Debt is gone. So 
Jesus suffering means I am Jesus is paying the phalla for everybody else's karma. Now according to karma theory, there's several issues with this. First issue is an issue with it means that the two systems are incompatible, does not mean one is right, the other is wrong. It just means they're incompatible. And you don't have to make a judgment on which is right, but you can explain why they don't work together. A karma of Adam and Eve, no matter how bad, will only bring phalla to Adam and Eve in their future life, not to all of us. We are not suffering somebody else's karma. I'm suffering the karma of my own past life. Whatever karma I do in this life, it will not be my kids, it will be me in my next life. This is possible because we have reincarnation. If they had reincarnation, then Adam and Eve would have suffered their karma in many lives, maybe thousand lives, maybe million lives, but it will not affect other people. Since they do not have karma, since they do not have reincarnation, how is that karma going to work out? Since there is no future life, where will it go? It can't be disappearing. It has to therefore be passed on to the progeny. So the transmission of karma through the sexual offspring, the people born through sex through your progeny, is a different system than the transmission of karma through your own next life. One of the articles I write that karma is not a sexually transmitted condition. It is not a sexually transmitted condition. It is transmitted through your own reincarnation. So the system of reincarnation to transmit is a different system than biological passing. Yeah. So this has huge ramifications in reconcile. You can't have karma reincarnation because if you had karma reincarnation in the biblical system, then there would be no eternal damnation for everybody else. It would be Adam and Eve, wherever they are, they would be paying the price for their disobedience. Not my problem, not your problem. It'd be their problem. Second problem is you cannot have one guy suffering for everybody else. You got to suffer your own. Nobody else can suffer for you. You've done something, baby. You got to pay for it. That's the, the karma way. Not someone else is going to do it and you have to just believe. And also, just by saying I believe in you doesn't mean enough. You know, It's an easy way out. I just have to check a box, sign, I believe that you suffered for me and now you're out. It's not, it's not a bailout as simple as that. You don't go to the bank and say, I believe Obama deposited trillion dollars for people like me and I believe, I believe, they sign and then the bank says, okay, your loan is off. It's not like that. It's more than just believing. That's a system of belief. You just have to believe that this history happened and then you're off the hook. It's not so simple for us. So I go through this very systematically, showing that these are two incompatible set of axioms. Axioms means assumptions. You can't prove them. We can't prove our assumptions. They can't prove their assumptions. But if you start with the assumptions of karma and reincarnation, you falsify the whole what is called Nicene Creed. What I just described about Adam and Eve, original sin, virgin birth, all this stuff is called Nicene Creed. The counts, the city of Nicaea, which is modern day Turkey, it has that city, is where this, this idea of Christianity was crystallized and codified. And in every church, they recite the Nicene Creed as an article of faith. Everybody has to believe. Every denomination, they have to believe this. So this, uh, in, if you, on the other hand, if you start with the Nicene Creed as your axioms, then karma and reincarnation have to be falsified. You cannot be, uh, you cannot therefore combine these two. So this book takes up issues like this, very philosophical, and shows what is different. I'm, I'm showing you the karma reincarnation is common to all the dharmas. The Nicene Creed is common to all the Christian denominations, and the two are incompatible. 
this is the kind of thing which can create a sense of who we are and why we are distinct without saying we are right and you are wrong we are different that's it now the another big difference and this is linked to the previous one is that they have a lineage of historical prophets and this lineage of historical prophets is the only means to the final truth you can't discover it on your own there is no such thing as satchitanand and you will have a state of samadhi and a state of unity consciousness a rishi state in which you will know the truth without having to rely on hearsay without having to rely on any any testimony of somebody else we have that you rely on other people's testimony other great rishis other great uh, you know anecdotes and accounts as a guidance to do yourself it's like i don't have to believe in the historical patanjali to get the benefits of yoga the historicity of patanjali has nothing to do with it i'll get the benefits by trying it myself i only believe in patanjali as a starting point because i i I've, i it gives me some faith it gives me a reason to do it because somebody told me that it's it's the right thing to do but ultimately i have to find out for myself all all the claims all the things about our dharma are self validating you have to do this for yourself no one else can do it for you and you have to find it out for yourself as the proof that it is valid that's a very different thing and this is possible only because the nature of man according to our faith is satchitanand originally divine not original sinners but originally divine and the other system is a system of originally sinners yeah now there's nothing you can't say it's all the same because original sinner and original divine cannot be mixed up cannot be considered the same i'll tell you a little story i have uh, uh evangelists in our i live in princeton and there's a seminary in the training young evangelists to go to poor countries like india and convert so before they're sent off they have to go around the neighborhood to get practice so they come to my house they go to various homes and knock at doors and they are uh, they they are, they have to get confidence how to sell how to argue how to answer questions how to spread the word so uh, they knock at my doorbell they come to ring the doorbell and i know exactly who they are but i pretend like i don't know because i just want to have some fun and you know and they're very young good looking very clean shaven well dressed you know men women very immaculate looking and they usually come and uh, they say can we come and talk to you and i say of course come on in so i give them chai chat with them and they have small talk you know they want to know who i am where what is going on they talk about current affairs to make me comfortable this is part of the training we first make the person comfortable don't just get to the point then after a while one of them is to take the lead because they all have to take turns to practice you know so who whoever turn it is looks at me and says sir have you heard the good news now good news of course in christianity means that the savior has come and he can save you from original sin that's good news because imagine if that were not possible you would be pretty bad shape you would be born sinner with no solution like terminal terminal condition in 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 an illness with no cure so it is in fact very good news so this is always talked about christian good news christian good news means savior has come to save you so i pretend like i don't know what they're talking about so i say good news what good news did we win the lottery or the stock market went up or what good news so they they don't know they think that i am a really ignorant guy because 
they're trained to expect an answer like uh, the person is expected to say, yeah, I've been saved. And then they'll argue, no, no, you have not been saved. Only we can give you the saving. Only God's son can give you this. So they're trained to expect a certain response. And I give them an unexpected response. So they kind of get thrown off. So I ask them, what is, uh, why, why have we been, uh, what is the problem? So they say, they say that, you know, we're all sinners, so we have to be saved. You do, I say, no, sinners, what? Why did I, I didn't do anything wrong. Why am I a sinner? What have you done wrong? So then they have to say, no, no, sir, you see, Adam and Eve did all this, and they did original sin, and then we got cursed in original damnation, all this stuff they tell me. Now, I know all this because I raised in a Catholic school in India, so I studied Bible, I know all this stuff, but I pretend like I don't know what they're talking about. So I say, well, really, Adam and Eve did that? So therefore, my sin, because they've done it, why is it my sin? They've done it, it's their problem. So they try to get me fixed up, you know. They, they, I, I just keep asking more questions. And they figured, you know, this guy's a gone case. He's not, a, he, he's not an easy one, you know. And then sometimes they go back and say, we, can we come back, sir? I will talk more. I say, of course. Then they bring a more senior guy, some older guy, to try and work on me. So this goes on, and uh, I'm just always pretending that, you know, I'm just asking logical questions, like, hey, you know, why? So then after a while I say something like, have you heard the Hindu good news? <laughs> and they are totally bowled over because nobody, no training taught them anything like that, you know, that you have to expect somebody might say like that. So they say, Hindu good news. What is Hindu good news? They all look at each other. I say, well, Hindu good news is, there is, we are not original sinners, we are originally divine. And they don't get it. They're just very, they're very, oh, oh, really, wow. So I say, listen, we're all, according to our tradition, we are all divine. And every one of them is divine form here. And so whatever bad karma somebody may do, they'll pay for it in their own life. And not my problem. And I tell him that, look, so your good news and my good news are a little different. Your good news is like, doctor comes and says, I have very good news, I can cure your disease. In fact, I'm the only one authorized to cure your disease. Very good news. That is good news, because anyone with an illness would like to hear that. But then I'm like a doctor who comes and says, I got even better news, you don't even have that disease. You don't have the disease. So this idea of you're a sinner, you don't have that disease. So this... Uh, I, I trademarked, this idea works so well, I actually filed and registered successfully a trademark, hindugoodnews.com. If you go to hindugoodnews.com, which you should do, you will see this whole discussion of Christian good news versus Hindu good news. You can put posters, you can put bumper stickers, hindugoodnews.com, and spread this idea of Hindu good news, that we are all Sachidanath, all Sachidanath. Imagine if... Everybody started going around saying, I got Hindu good news. We are all divine, originally divine, no sinner winner. What a big deal. What a big deal it could be. And this is the kind of difference we have to talk about. Yeah, we have to say this. I am not saying you are right, I am right. I don't know. But I am telling you this is our claim. That's your claim. This is how it's different. Yeah? We don't have the idea of original sin. We have the idea of being originally Satchitanath. All of us. That's our original nature. Original nature is Satchitana, not sinner. Now this is, it seems like very, you know, glib, but very profound philosophically argued. Very profound. So I go on in this book talking about all kind of philosophical, philosophical ideas which have practical applications. 
all these ideas. And in the, I keep moving through the book. In the interest of time, I'll give you one more and then we'll take questions. In the final, in the chapter 5, is about Sanskrit non-translatables. Sanskrit non-translatables. Meaning, there are certain words in Sanskrit that are not translatable into English. You see, they're not translatable in English. The commonly translated words into English are mistranslations for several words. Now, if you have an apple, because something physical is concrete, you can have many languages giving different names for it. They can be all be fine, because it's very clear what we're talking about. But if I'm talking about Shakti, it's not the same thing as energy, like electricity or some kind of energy is, a, is, a, is not a divine thing. It's a, just a material thing. Shakti is not a material thing, you know. Shakti is a lot more than the material part of it. It's one part of it. The material part of it is one part of it. But Shakti has got so much. It's got intelligence. It's got divinity. It's got so much. You can't replace Shakti with the energy. That's a very serious error. You can't replace yoga as exercise or gymnastics or prayer. You can't. Yeah? You can't replace Murti as idol. And unfortunately, many of our temples call idol. You have to understand the Western language and their use of that term, what that word idol meant in Western history. And then you will, be, you will not want to call your Murti that. It is an insult. It's not a good idea. Atman cannot be translated as soul. You know, animals don't have souls in the Western religion. Animals don't have souls. But in our tradition, not only animals have Atman, but even plants. Even the smallest bacteria has Atman. Everything is form of divine. So if everything is form of Brahman, then that Atattva Masi, Aham Brahmasmi, it, is, it applies to everything. And so if you replace it with soul, you've changed the philosophy. You've destroyed the philosophy. You've replaced our philosophy with something just to be same like them. You've actually committed a huge problem. You see? And besides, soul does not have reincarnation. I just got done telling you that. Soul is just to live one life, then go to heaven or hell. And Atman is reincarnated. And soul is always separate from God. Even in heaven, soul lives in God's house. It's like you are host, I live in your house. Prasad is hosting me and I'm staying in his house. But I'm separate from him. But I'm staying in his house. So even in heaven, soul is separate. There's no unity consciousness like we have. It is not that it is only Brahman and the Atman is a sort of one, one aspect of one form of that or you know, one uh, version of that, one copy of that. Yeah. So translating Atman as soul is a serious problem for me. And in this way, I go around... I give 20 or more examples in this book and I recommend that one way to preserve our difference and to educate our next generation who are very English speaking is to put at least 50 to 100 non-translatables into their vocabulary. If a child grows up taking these non-translatables, understanding them very, very seriously, like you do one non-translatable a day or even one non-translatable per week and really explain to them philosophically what it means what the English equivalent means and why it's different, and they're not the same. It may be close, but it is not the same, and do not replace it with that English. If you keep teaching a person like that, and you teach them a total of 50 to 100, and that person's whole thinking is in terms of that, this vocabulary, 
they will have the foundations, the sanskars of dharma, even if they are speaking English otherwise, but they will understand these concepts, and these concepts are so profound. If you understand shakti, if you understand yoga, if you understand atman, you see, the notion of Brahman is not the same as the Abrahamic idea of God, because God is a very different concept. You know, God is totally, the whole behavior of God, the pathology of God, the history of God, the commandments of God is not anything like that Brahman has been doing. It's like you have the biography of one man who's made some commandments, who's said certain things, who's, be, who's done certain things, and then you have the teachings of another person. And if these are not, they're just so different, how can you say it must be the same guy? It's not the same guy, very different. And then Om should not be translated. Om is not Amen, Om is not uh, Allah. I was very disappointed when Swami Ramdev came to New York some years ago in his first trip overseas to US and some, uh, I think it was a Muslim journalist or some journalist asked him that you know you're doing yoga so what if a Christian or a Muslim does not want to chant Om? He says no problem they can say Allah instead of Om. He, he, he turned it into a trivial thing. I was very disappointed because Om is a vibration. It is not a meaning. It is not a, like a word for apple. It is not a certain entity that you are naming. Om does not refer to something else. Om refers only to itself. Om is self-referential. Om is not a concept or an idea or a mental thing. Om is just the vibration of Om. That's Om. And when you replace that vibration with some other vibration, you've changed it. Each vibration has its own signature, its own effect on me, its own effect on the cosmos the microcosm and the macrocosm. And when you replace one vibration with a different vibration, it produces a different, a different outcome, a different uh, effect. It's like you replace one medicine with another medicine. Maybe that other medicine is good. It has its own purpose also. I'm not saying it's bad, but it can't be the same. It's not the same effect. If you replace one spice in your kitchen, in the, in the recipe, you remove it and instead of putting that spice, you put some other spice. It's not the same thing. You see? So if you take Om out and put some other vibration, it has got a different effect. And there is nothing wrong in saying that there is a certain vibration that Rishi's discovered, which we call the cosmic vibration. You don't have to believe in it and all that, but this vibration got nothing to do with God. There is no injunction against it in your religion. How can you have an injunction against something that you didn't know? You can only have do's and don'ts pertaining to things that you have discovered. So a civilization that never discovered such a vibration don't have any rules or against it. Only if you translate Om as God, Hindu God and all that, then those guys have problems and you have to say, okay, replace it with Allah, then that's uh, you've distorted Om. So you have to say, Om has no meaning. It is just a vibration beyond all meanings because every meaning is concept. It's a mental level. Meaning is a mental thing. Om takes you beyond meanings. Om, you, to explain Om, you can intellectualize it for a long time. You can approximate it by saying it also refers to this and that and that and that. But all the discussions and all the explanations fall short of Om itself. You see? So Om is at the end of the day a vibration which is just itself and this vibration has, you know, repeating it has certain effects. And there is no religion uh, that has an injunction against such a vibration and it doesn't uh, 
prevent you from being a Muslim worshipping Allah or being a Christian worshipping God or whatever if you chant Om. So I would have liked if our Guru were knowledgeable enough to be able to do all this. Very surprised and disappointed that our Gurus keep uh, taking the easy way out. Many years ago, uh, my foundation used to uh, have a project with Princeton Day School, which is a very prestigious school in my neighborhood. We used to take those kids to uh, India during spring break to get religious experience. They had a course called World Religions. It, it used to teach Hinduism very badly, like many places. So to fix it, I went to the principal and they said, okay, let some teachers go to India with you and see how they like it and then we'll decide. So the first year I took two teachers, a history teacher and a religion teacher, and we went to Rishikesh and so on. They loved it. And then from the next year onwards, we started taking, you know, 20, 25 students every year. So after one or two batches of students came back, they came back transformed. They were so impressed, these, these ninth, 10th grade students, very impressed at that age. Very in college, they are already fixed in ideas, but at that high school age, they're still open. So they were uh, wanting to, um, you know, they wrote essays, they had blogs, they did all kinds of wonderful things about their uh, transformation in, uh, in India, you know, with Indian religions. And then uh, when this particular Swamiji in Rishikesh who had hosted them was visiting US, he's also a very well-known famous Swami. So he was coming to New Jersey, so it was decided that in my house we'll host a get-together. All the students who had gone to India and their parents and their teachers would come for a dinner and Swamiji would come and they would all come share great experiences, they would all talk and some of them read out their essays, some of them had powerpoints with pictures and Swamiji answered questions like that. So it was a very nice thing. So many kids were so transformed. So one kid said, Swamiji, how do I become a Hindu? So Swamiji was very embarrassed. Our Swamiji gets embarrassed. So he very embarrassed, tried to avoid the question, said do good things, listen to your parents, get good grades, like that. So he persisted. He said, Swamiji, will you initiate me? So he says, but you are already doing good things. Oh, you already, everybody, you know, whatever. He tried to avoid it. Then this kid wouldn't give up. So he said, would you be willing to give me a mantra? Now that's specific. Yeah? He, this guy knew. So this Swami, very well-known guy, says, yeah, close your eyes and say, David, just say, Om Jesus, that's your mantra. The kid was so devastated, embarrassed, let down, felt dropped. Little did the Swami know that this guy is a Jew and the last thing you want to tell him is Om Jesus. <laughs> how, how ignorant these world traveling Swamis are, some of them. How ignorant, thinking he's being a real smart guy. And the next day this guy came to us, he talked to my kids, his teacher called to us and said, you know, it's very sad, you know. We, so then I had to get him somebody else who could properly initiate and give him a sense of belonging. Our gurus in the 60s had, you know, almost 5 to 10 percent of the American population dying to, in this yoga movement, hippie movement, dying to become Hindu. Uh, Dalai Lama would make them Buddhist if they came to be Buddhist, ordain them, officially declare them you are a Buddhist. And they have become very loyal, white Buddhists in various universities, very loyal to the Dalai Lama. 
For everyone who became a Buddhist, there were ten who wanted to become Hindu. We had Satchitanand and Osho and Prabhupada and whatnot, all these guys, ten, twelve big swamis, mega swamis. We could have had by now 25 million these people are doing yoga and lost and confused and many of them gone into Christian yoga. We would have had 25 million white Hindus here by now if our gurus knew that this is, these guys need a sense of belonging. They cannot just be entirely individual on their own. They need to belong. They need to be, have their congregational group. Certain species are group animals like dogs and wolves are pack animals. True. Cats are not. It's true. So, uh, in cultures also, certain cultures have been brought up because God gives a collective deal to the Jews. A collective deal, so they're a collective mentality. Collective tribe. This tribe is chosen. And Jesus says those who are saved and not saved, so there's a congregational mentality. Unlike temples where it's you and the deity. One, one. In a cathedral, it's a huge gathering, it's a large congregation, and we're all together in it. And guess what? When we go to heaven, we'll be living in the same community. Like on the golf course, we'll have one part of it for us, you know, our gathering. It's like that. It's a, uh, it's a group travel. See, you can go to uh, some online and buy a ticket. Or you can go to a travel agent and he's got a group travel where he'll pay to pay, take 200 of you together. So the Abrahamic regions give a group package deal. Group travel to heaven. Ours is individual sadhana. Yogi is alone. He is not concerned with the others are doing it. It's not my job to make them get their act together. I'm not going to fix them. And I've got to do my own. they got to do their own. We have to understand that when a Westerner comes, he comes with that conditioning that spirituality is part of a community sense of belonging together. And he is looking for that. And if you don't give him that, he will wander off at what I call a U-turn. He will learn. Then after a while, he'll go back to his tradition because he's looking for that. Prabhupada gave that in his con. He officially brought them in, shaved off their head, put dhoti, go singing Hare Krishna and sell this. All this kind of very successful until the American authorities started filing lawsuits to finish off his con because his con is getting very dangerous for the American in their mind, you know. They were thinking it's going to finish off the young generation. So they went after it. But he had this idea that you got to give them a sense of identity. You see? So our people didn't know that. They bungled up this whole opportunity. Now, I'll close with one final remark because I could just go on. Sometimes people say, this is very un-Hindu of you to discuss others. Truth is in your heart. Why are you talking about others? So I have a response to that also. I always respond using some Sanskrit word which they, then they suddenly say, oh yeah. Then, then they are quiet. And the magic word is Purvapaksha. Purvapaksha is a very old technique in our tradition. It means debating the other, understanding the other's point of view, studying his tradition, what it claims. Like I told, gave you a Purvapaksha of Nicene Creed from the Karma reincarnation point of view, I gave a Purvapaksha of the Nicene Creed. From the Hindu good news point of view, I gave a Purvapaksha of the Christian good news. Yeah. So, Purvapaksha, the Vedantins, Adi Shankara was doing Purvapaksha with the Buddhists, debating back and forth. One school of Vedanta versus another school of Vedanta. Vedanta versus Mimamsa. You know, every school of our thought in 
in Dharma, had these debates with every other school. That is how they learnt from each other, they sharpened their ideas, they, they defended themselves, they argued. So being argumentative and talking back and, and understanding the other's thought process and refuting it, is nothing un-Hindu about it. It's very, very much part of who we are. In fact, it is the other schools that have been very dogmatic and don't argue, just believe it and check the box, sign and you'll be saved, that kind of thing. We are not like that, we are required to argue. So our, you know, on, on the one hand, we are the tradition of Adi Shankara, which is all about argumentation. Chinmayanand, modern revivalist, all about argumentation. Vivekanand, like that. Those who believe in Gandhi, full of encounters, audaciously challenging the British. He did Purva Paksha, British civilization. Gandhi wrote a book called Hindu Swaraj, 100-page book, in 1909. And that was a critique of, a dharmic critique of British civilization. Very interesting. That was his starting point, to understand them on my own terms. And Gandhi never translated, like I don't want to, certain words translated, Swadharma, Dharma, Satyagraha, Swadhyay, huh? Swatantarta. He never translated that. When the British judge asked him, what are you doing, sir, Mr. Gandhi? So he says, I'm doing Satyagraha. He didn't say I'm doing uh, resistance or whatever. So he says, what is Satyagraha? So he gives a long answer what this it is, you know. Because it's not one simple thing. It has to do with inner sacrifice. It's a very, it's a very complex argument. So that guy doesn't get it. He keeps asking and then Gandhi keeps giving him answers. And he doesn't want to translate Satyagraha. Then he says, well, what will you get out of it? He says, we'll get Svatantrata. That also is another word. <laughs> so he knew you control the terms of the discourse. We'll debate on my terms. I'm not going to get sucked into your terms. So, the final uh, concept, and then I close, discussed in this book, uh, I have several, but I'll just give you one more, is the concept of digestion. Digestion means we are losing our difference, our distinctiveness of our civilization, and getting digested into Western universalism. Each generation becoming less and less dharmic, more and more dissolved into Western universalism. The people want to uh, become white. And I have a friend who's very much into my wavelength in Mumbai. And uh, his wife was telling me something very sad. And he says, my daughter, who's a 14-year-old, says, Mom, I'm not going to wear a sari when I grow up. And I said, why? He says, because they'll think I'm a maid. That's how sad it is. How sad it is. This is true. These are young people. So digestion is like, you know, when a predator eats a prey and digests the prey, there's no more prey left. A tiger eats a deer, deer is gone. So the tiger's, the deer's meat has to be broken and as it goes into the digestive system, it's broken into smaller, smaller, there's different enzymes and the different uh, chemicals work and they break down the, the food that has been eaten into smaller, smaller molecules until there's no more deer DNA left, there's not, no deer DNA left. And then these little, little molecules that have been made, like spare parts, they're reassembled into tiger DNA. And they put as flesh and blood and bones and the tiger gets strong. And there's no more deer left. And what didn't fit is called waste, thrown out. So if you look at civilizations that have been digested, the pre-Christians are now called pagan. They believed in goddess, they believed in the earth, and they had sacred and a lot of things and all, you know. 
So Christianity took what was useful, like Christmas tree is from pagans, Easter is from pagans, many, many ideas Christianity borrowed from pagans, but the pagans themselves finished. So if somebody comes and says, it's a compliment to you that we are taking yoga and making it Christian yoga, you should say, aha, but we're getting digested. And when you took these things from other people, what happened to them? Yeah. It was considered a great tribute to Native Americans that white man would come and say, you know, you should be so grateful. We think your land is very good, very beautiful land. We're praising your land. Of course, it means that we're taking it away from you. You see? So uh, obviously the tiger, when he sniffs at the deer, he says, wow, this is delicious. You are so, so smelling so good. You're looking so beautiful. Or when you look at the plate of food and you say, this is delicious. Now from the food's point of view, it's bad news because you're going to be finished. Yeah. Only a foolish deer would say, you know, he'll tell his friends, this tiger's coming and he's praising me, he says, I smell so good and I'm tasty, I feel very delicious, I'm so honored, this tiger likes me, you know. Only a foolish deer would say like that. And the civilizations have digested other civilizations. The Native Americans were digested, they were made, they were finished off, pagans, African culture. African culture got digested into Egyptian civilization and Egyptian civilization got digested into Greek civilization. Greek civilization got digested into what's called Western civilization. And now Tibetan civilization is being digested into Chinese civilization. It may disappear in a couple of generations. It will be some museums. Chinese tour guide will take you and say this was a old traditional Buddhist monastery of Tibetan. This guy used to do like this and there's a bell and he used to do that and that and then now next we go to that room that we go. It will be like a museum. You you will you, turn into a museum and not a living living civilization. So, uh, the biggest challenge I have is not Christians, Westerners, Marxists, opponents, but our own people who are enjoying being digested. Enjoying being digested. Yeah? Many people say, what's wrong? We are doing very well. If they, if they uh, digest us, they have better human rights than we do. We will do better money-wise. I have a BMW. Uh, we'll be, in other words, it's, an, it's a difference anxiety from an inferiority complex which says the way to resolve my inferiority, inferiority position is to let me become like them, get digested because they're better, I'll be like one of them. So you have a real choice to make. We as a civilization have a real choice to make. Whichever way we choose, let's do it consciously, let's do it with knowledge, let's do it informed and not uh, ignorantly and not automatically and unconsciously. We can be digested. That's a choice. We must properly understand what it means. We must understand what happens to others who have been digested. Or we can be different, is the antidote. So when people say, what is your solution to being digested? I say, be different. Which means, understand what is different that is non-digestible. Karma reincarnation is non-digestible into Christianity because of the problem I showed you. They will try to digest it in a distorted way to remove the incompatibility by distorting the karma and make it digested. Don't let that happen. If you are very well informed and you've done your Purva Paksha of Nicene Creed, you will know how it hits the Nicene Creed. So whenever somebody tries to fake, fake it and pretend that there's no problem, we'll, we'll accept karma and all that, you have to argue what it does to Nicene Creed and demand a answer from that person and you will find at the end of an argument they will never accept karma and reincarnation, they are pulling a fast one on you. They are pulling a fast one on you which is very easy to do with Hindus because they are not informed. So 
if you have done your purva paksha of the other. And if you are very clear on how you are different. And how you are different in non-digestible ways. Not, the, not that okay we take off our shoes because that everybody can do. It's not uh, incompatible with Christianity. Uh, they can have their priests wear saffron. They can have uh, agarbatti to Jesus. And, and they can sit and eat on a banana leaf. And they can give sacred food to uh, Mother Mary. They can do all the things which are not uh, incompatible with their DNA. Yeah? So if you are the deer... And part of your being, your core, your essence, your DNA, is something which they can't digest. Then they're not going to eat you. Thanks. So uh, the choices we have are being digested or being different. These are the two. India is at the crossroads. Dharma is at the crossroads. People are so delighted that everybody is appropriating and copying dharma. We must be good because everybody is copying it. And I'm saying, have you understood digestion? Yeah? Have you understood digestion? Because flattery and praising, but then trying to remap it, appropriate it, and Christianize it, and westernize it, and forget the sources. That is the topic of my next book, which will be called U-turn theory. U-turn theory is how Westerners come, they praise, they study, they even get a Hindu name, they get initiated. Then some of them come, go into the Deepak Chopra, Oprah mode where they say everything is same, all spirituality, it's all spiritual, everything is this, you could be that way, that way. They kind of decontextualize, remove the dharma, remove the Hinduism, remove the Indian sources. That is stage two. Then some other followers come along, they take that and put it into Christianity. You have Christian yoga or they put it into science. You have neuroscience, cognitive science. You have... John Kabat-Zinn in Massachusetts who took uh, Vipassana and he calls it mindfulness meditation and he's got patents on it. You have Stephen LaBerge who took Yoga Nidra and he called it Lucid Dreaming. Lucid Dreaming, Stanford guy. And he's created a Lucid Dreaming Institute, a lot of patents and it's considered his original discovery, getting a lot of medical grants as a big breakthrough on mind science. You know, You've got... Uh, Herb Benson in Harvard, who took Transcendental Meditation, removed Om and put in One. He says, wherever they're saying Om, you say One, One, One. It sounds similar. And you remove the, all this yucky Hindu stuff, he said. And he called it Relaxation Response, trademarked it, and made a huge career at Harvard. So these are all examples, and I'm writing a whole U-turn theory book on how our tradition has been digested and Christianized and de-Indianized, removed from the sources. And at the same time, there is this uh, negativity towards us, what I call caste, cows and curry hatred. Your Professor Wendy Doniger at University of Chicago being one of the many centers doing this. Uh, all the bias and those kind of negative scholarship. And then the U-turn, final stage, is the most tragic. This U-turned revised, distorted knowledge gets re-exported to India and Indians love it. Indians love it. So this whole, I explain how the Aryan theory was a result of Indologists figuring out things, keeping what they needed, digesting it for themselves as Sanskrit and Vedas and, and Aryan is ours, you know, they're the Westerners and rejecting and putting negative things on Indians and then they re-export it to India and Indians believe in it. And now you have uh, very fancy gurus like Andrew Cohen, 
who was a disciple of some new age type Hindu called Papaji. And Papaji was a disciple of Raman Maharishi, like that. So this Andrew Cohen becomes a big, big star all over India. You go around with these middle class people who don't want to touch anything that sounds like Hinduism. But Andrew Cohen is now teaching them meditation. Andrew Cohen is teaching them non-dualism, but this is Christian non-dualism or Jewish non-dualism or some kind of universal non-dualism. So this is the U-turn. The U-turn, which we'll be talking about next book, we'll explain in detail with many examples of how this digestion happens through stages, very, very gradual stages. And so a lot of people are very excited that we are getting digested because they're taking a very short-term view of what is actually going on. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Do write to us any feedback, suggestions or questions you might have on infinityfoundationpodcast at the rate of gmail.com. Thank you.